Chapter Four of *The Lady from Nowhere* by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Chapter Four: The Five Landladies. The journalist is the true Asmodeus of the day, and is quite as fond as that meddlesome demon of interfering with what does not concern him. He invades the privacy of our lives, unroofs our houses reveals our secrets, and trumpets forth things best left untold to the four quarters of the globe. Gebb had an especial abhorrence of this magpie habit of the press, as he averred, with much reason, that excessively minute details of criminal cases set forth in the newspapers put the ill-doers on their guard, and warned them of coming dangers, with the result that they were easily able to evade the futile clutches of the hands of justice. Yet in the instance of the Grangebury murder, the publication of details had a singular result, no less than the assisting of right against wrong. As soon as the circumstances of the crime became known, reporters of every newspaper in the metropolis flocked to Paradise Row with expansive notebooks, eager eyes, and inquiring minds. They surveyed the house, questioned the police, interviewed Mrs. Presk, and gave outline portraits of the landlady and her servant. The yellow boudoir especially attracted their attention, and stirred their imagination to descriptions of eastern splendor. It was hinted that its magnificence was on more than a kingly scale. It was compared to the celebrated room in one of Balzac's romances, and its furnishing and appointments were minutely detailed in glowing descriptions exhausting the most superlative adjectives in the English tongue. Also the unknown history and strange death of its occupant were commented upon, guesses were made as to her identity, and reasons were given for her secretive life, for her strange belief in, and consultation of, charlatans and fortune-tellers, and all those cunning gypsies who live by the gullibility of the public. Appeals were made in these articles to the deaf and dumb driver to appear and declare the mystery of the yellow van, the yellow room, and their queer owner. In short, as the journals were in want of sensation, they made the most of this material supplied by chance, and England, from one end to the other, rang with the tidings of Miss Ligram's death, Miss Ligram's boudoir, Miss Ligram's mysterious life. And all this trumpeting and noise— Gebb, the enemy of the press, heard with singular complacency, indeed, with pleasure and satisfaction. "'As a rule, I hate these revelations,' said he, to one who knew his views, and wondered at his equanimity, as in nine cases out of ten they do more harm than good by placing the criminal on his guard. But this is the tenth case, where it is advisable to make details of the crime as public as possible.' I rely on these descriptions of the yellow boudoir to trace Miss Ligram's past life. "'In what way?' demanded the inquirer. "'In the way of the yellow van,' replied Gebb, promptly. As Mrs. Presk truly observed, the hard fact of that van shows that Miss Ligram was in the habit of moving from place to place with her tent, and setting it up after the fashion of an Arab, in whatever spot took her fancy. Now, when those other people who have had the yellow boudoir set out in its tawdry splendor under their roofs read of Miss Ligram's death, and recognize the description of her strange room, 
They will come forward, and detail their experiences of the lady. So, in one way and another, we may be enabled to trace Miss Ligram's past life back to a starting point. It is the only chance I can see of gaining any knowledge. Within the week events of a strange nature justified the judicious belief entertained by the astute detective. Letters in female calligraphy were received at Scotland Yard, stating that the writers could give certain information to the police concerning the murdered woman. Also, a few days later, decayed females of the landlady genus presented themselves in person to detail their experiences of Mrs. Ligram and her eccentricities. From all these personal and written statements, it appeared that for four years, more or less, Miss Ligram had been moving from one part of London to another. In no one place she had remained longer than six months, and in each her conduct and mode of life had been the same. She arrived regularly in the yellow van, and, having obtained permission from the various landladies at the cost of paying double the rent demanded, as regularly set up and furnished her yellow boudoir. As in the latest instance of the Grangebury episode, she consulted fortune-tellers, spiritualists, and shady people of like nature, departing at the end of each tenancy without a word as to her destination. It would seem from this evidence that the woman was consistent in her eccentricities, and conducted her strange, secretive life on the most methodical principles. One thing which seemed of a piece with the dead woman's desire for concealment was that in every place she, so to speak, camped in, she gave a different name, each appellation being stranger than the last, and all apparently of her own manufacture. She figured at Hampstead under the name Margil. In Richmond she was known as Miss Ramling. When housed in St. John's Wood, she called herself Milgar. And at Shepherd's Bush. But, for the sake of clearness, it will be advisable to let the several landladies speak for themselves. Five persons, five pieces of information, more or less similar, and five obviously made-up names. So much for the past of Miss Ligram. Mrs. Brown, of West Kensington, stated that she knew the deceased under the name Miss Limreg. She arrived at Mrs. Brown's in the month of May, 95, and after six months' tenancy departed in the month of October in the same year. Mrs. Brown was ignorant as to where she came from, and equally at a loss to declare whither she went. Both in coming and going, Miss Limreg used as a means of transportation the yellow van, and during her residence she inhabited the yellow room of her own furnishing, for the consulting therein of the fortune-telling fraternity. Mrs. Kane testified that a lady who called herself Miss Milgar arrived in Shelley Road, St. John's Wood, on the first day of November, 95, and left the district in the last days of April, 96. Her conduct during her six-month stay was similar to that described by Mrs. Presk and Mrs. Brown. On the evidence of such conduct, and the facts of the van and boudoir, both yellow in color, Mrs. Kane had no hesitation in declaring that the murdered Miss Ligram, of Grangebury, was her eccentric lodger, Miss Milgar. The information given by Miss Bain, of Crescent Villa, Hampstead, showed that the name assumed there by the wandering lady was Margill, and that she took possession of her lodgings there in the month of November, 93, having arrived, according to her custom, in the yellow van. While the lodger of Miss Bain, she gave herself up to the study of dream-books and the interpretation of visions. 
During her occupancy of Crescent Villa, the landlady, in spite of all efforts, could find out nothing about her past, or discover where she came from, and the so-called Miss Margil departed with her furniture towards the end of April, 1894. She left no address. Miss Lamb, resident at Richmond, entertained the unknown from November, 1894, to April, 1895. She knew her by the strange name of Ramlick, and always thought her weak in her mind, owing to her queer mode of life and belief in omens. When Miss Ramlick made any boastful speech reflecting on her worldly prosperity, she would touch wood to avert the omen. Absit omen, umberufen, in a good hour be it spoken, niporte. These words and phrases were continually on her tongue, and she was a slave to all forms of superstition. She would not walk under a ladder. If she spilt salt, she threw a pinch over her shoulder. An unexpected meeting with a magpie, a hunchback, a cross-eyed person, or with a piebald horse, either made her rejoice in the most extravagant fashion, or threw her into a fever of apprehension. She was not communicative, and resisted all Miss Lamb's attempts at social intercourse. During the whole period of her stay, no words were spoken, and no event occurred, likely to throw light on her past. Nor, when she departed, did Miss Lamb discover whither she intended to go. In coming, in staying, in going, Miss Bramlick was a mystery. The owner of Myrtle Bank, Shepherd's Bush, a bird-like spinster called Cass, informed Gebb that a certain Miss Migrell lodged with her from the 1st of May to the end of October, 1894. She arrived in the van spoken of by the other witnesses. She paid double rent for the privilege of dismantling a room, and therein set up her tent-like habitation of yellow satin, furnished with cane chairs and tables, illuminated with candles, and perfumed with incense. She was, said Miss Cass, superstitious beyond all belief, actually divining by teacups, and believing in the future as foretold by the position of the tea-leaves, after the fashion of illiterate servant-girls. Miss Migrell never went to church. She had, so far as Miss Cass knew, no Bible in her possession, but read books dealing with fortune-telling and necromancy. One of her favorite volumes was The Book of Fate, another The Book of Dreams, and she appeared to have an insatiable desire to know the future, but for what reason, Miss Cass, in spite of all efforts, was unable to discover. This strange creature departed with all her worldly goods for some unknown destination during the last days of October, 1894. Mrs. Presk was the last landlady who received this mysterious woman, and knew her as Miss Ligram. She arrived at Paradise Row at the beginning of May, 1896, and met with a violent death three months later. Mrs. Presk was as ignorant of the woman's past as the other landladies had been. She arrived from nowhere, and, no doubt, would have departed six months later in an equally mysterious fashion. But in the middle of her Grangebury tenancy, a violent death put an end to her further wanderings. Gebb heard all this evidence, which was monotonous from its sameness, with much satisfaction and great attention. By means of the details afforded by the five landladies and Mrs. Presk, he traced back the wanderings of the dead woman to the month of November, 1893. But further back he was unable to go, for lack of information. In spite of all publicity given to the case, 
notwithstanding advertisements and his own private efforts no other witnesses came forward to give evidence as to the past of miss ligram so in finding he was at a dead stop the detective resolved to stand at all events for the present on the information he had already acquired for his own private information and guidance he tabulated an account of miss ligram's names addresses and former landladies together with the dates of her various rests as follows miss bain hampstead margil november eighteen ninety three to april eighteen ninety four miss cass shepherd's bush migral may to october eighteen ninety four miss lamb richmond ramlig november eighteen ninety four to april eighteen ninety five mrs brown west kensington limreg may to october eighteen ninety five mrs kane st john's wood milgar november eighteen ninety five to april eighteen ninety six mrs presk grangebury ligram april to july eighteen ninety six and at the foot of this table he noted the fact that on the night of the twenty fourth july eighteen ninety six according to medical evidence at ten o'clock the so-called miss ligram met with a violent death at the hands of some unknown person so far so good but here gebb's information came to an end and beyond a few years knowledge of miss ligram's past he had no evidence to show him why she had taken to this mode of life or why her eccentric manner of living should have been cut short by violence ready as he was in resource the detective did not know how to act or in which direction to turn for information while thus perplexed he received a hasty note scribbled on a half-sheet of dirty paper it ran as follows forty eight guy street pimlico come and see me at once about the grangebury case i have solved the mystery and can hang the criminal yours simon parge end of chapter four